I want to start with a story from back home, Northern Ireland, where I'm from. Uh, during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, uh, the Protestants and the Catholics were uh, fighting. So that was one of the big divides. We think like different religions, we were fighting within one religion. And so there was this story going around, and uh, it's about this guy called Seamus. So if you know me, you know that Seamus comes up in many of my talks. So this is actually how Seamus dies. It's a sad story. But Seamus is a good Catholic man, right? He goes to confession three times a week, and he goes to uh, Mass every Sunday. He has a crucifix around his neck. He has his rosaries. And, you know, he, he basically has, has followed Catholic tradition for as long as he can remember. But he's in his 70s, and he finds out that he's actually going to die. And he's brought into hospice. And when he's in hospice, he remembers about this guy who used to always evangelize him at work, this kind of evangelical Protestant who was always telling him that he was going to burn in hell, was always saying that he needed to repent and be born again. And what happened one day is his family were gathered, and Seamus said, I would like this guy from my work to come and visit me. So the family are a bit surprised, but they go and they find him, and they say, listen, Seamus would love to have a chat with you before, you know, he passes. And so this evangelical pastor, you know, goes to the hospice, and he enters the room where all the family are gathered around the, the bed of Seamus, and Seamus asks them to leave. He wants a little bit of time with this pastor. So they go outside, they can see what's happening through, you know, the open door. And this pastor sits beside Seamus. And they talk. And it looks like Seamus is actually crying at one point. And then this pastor, this evangelical Protestant, puts his hand on Seamus's shoulder. And they both bow their heads. And it looks like they're praying. And then after the prayer, Seamus takes off his crucifix, hands it to the pastor. And uh, the pastor gives him a little cross. And so the family are confused, and they go back into the room, and they ask what's happened. And the Protestant has a big smile on his face. You know, he's been evangelizing Seamus for the last 40 years. So he's like, well, Seamus, you know, repented. He uh, gave up Catholicism. He became born again. He's a good Protestant man now. And the family are shocked, and they look at Seamus, and they go like, but Seamus, why did you do this? And Seamus's son says, you know, you've shunned Protestantism all your life. And Seamus looks at his son and says, listen, son, you don't understand. He says, would you rather see a good Catholic die of cancer or one of those Protestant bastards? Right? <laughs> now, I like this story because what's happening there is Seamus is understanding that his symbolic enmeshment in reality, his religious positioning, his ideological position in reality does not fully define his desire. That somehow he is different from, more than, less than, other than his various identities. So he fully identifies now as a Protestant and yet can weirdly see himself as not fully what he is symbolically. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, talked about this in his book, Being and Nothingness. He actually used an example of a waiter who was uh, serving coffee in a Parisian cafe, and he was so good at it 
the sort said, this guy thinks he's a waiter. Like, he was, you know, this typical Parisian waiter, the way he was walking and carrying the coffees and putting them down. Sartre was like, this waiter thinks he's a waiter. He thinks that's what his identity is. He thinks he is fully enmeshed in that position. And Sartre said, this is bad faith, because this waiter is also more than, less than, other than this positioning that he's taking. And so this kind of leads us to the idea that we are not what we do or think necessarily. There's an old movie, they're actually making a remake of it. The old movie's called What Women Want. And uh, it's, it's based on uh, this question that Freud asked at the end of his life, you know, what, what do women want? And uh, in the movie, Mel Gibson stars in it, and basically Mel Gibson has an electric shock, and suddenly he can hear what women are thinking. So now he knows what women want. So that's the whole basis of the comedy. And the one they're making now is called What Men Want. It's the idea that this woman can hear the inner thoughts of men. But of course, the question is whether that would help us understand what the other person wants if we could hear their inner thoughts. This is something that I was exploring in a fairy tale that I wrote. I've just finished a book called Enduring Love. It's actually going to be out in a couple of weeks. There's a, there's a copy out there you can kind of look at. It's just a proof copy, so there might be a few typos in it. But um, it comes out, and it's, it's, a, it's a series of fairy tales that I wrote about these animals who are in this place called the Lonely Forest. And it's just very, it's very close to the 100 Acre Wood, but it's, it's, uh, it's not as well known. And, I named it The Lonely Forest because in 1910, a book came out by two physicists, uh, Mann and Twiss, and they asked a question, and you'll know the question, but they put it very precisely. They said, if a tree falls in a lonely forest, does it make a sound? And I don't know, I find that very melancholy. I know it's just, it's, just a, it's, a, it's a mind experiment. When I read it, if a tree falls in a lonely forest, does it make a sound? And so I imagined this world, the lonely forest, where all of these animals are trying to work out what it is to love, what it is to desire, what it is to live, and what it is to die. And it's called enduring love because love is so difficult to endure. These little animals are trying to endure the horror that is love the horror that is, that is this excessive desire for one person or one thing over everything else. And so I'm going to show you one of these uh, fairy tales. This is um, called The uh, Lake of Truth, and I've gone high-tech for this. This is the badger, by the way. I always say it's a beaver, but I've been told it's a badger. The badger who tells all the stories in the Lonely Forest. Um, so there he is. He's going to tell this story, The Lake of Truth. So the story is very simple. There is this little mouse who is down in his luck and depressed because he's lost his job. This is the time of the recession. This is like set 10, 15 years ago. He lost everything. He had some money invested in houses, lost it all. He, um, he had a good job that just completely taken away from him. And he's just like, he's, he's, he's a disaster, right? So doesn't know what to do. He's sitting in his little humble dwelling and he's reading the paper one day. And as he's reading the paper, he sees 
finally a job that he's qualified for. Now, this is not a, like a fancy job. It's definitely below his pay grade. It's below his skill level. But beggars can't be choosers. And it's a job that's in the Lonely Forest. So he goes to the Lonely Forest and he interviews for the job. And fantastically, he gets it, right? Now, I say it's just a, it's just a factory floor job, nothing fancy, but it's something. So he packs his few belongings and he, he moves to the Lonely Forest. And when he gets to the Lonely Forest, he starts his job. His job is basically putting uh, the tops on acorns, right? So as I say, it's just, it's just a conveyor belt job, nothing fancy. But he makes friends, everybody's nice, they have a bit of a laugh, everything's good. Well, anyway, once he's settled, once he's got his job, he starts to get to know people in the Lonely Forest. And one day, while he's out shopping at the grocery store, he comes across this beautiful guinea pig. And I think you'll all agree she is stunning. Beautiful, beautiful woman. And uh, he's like immediately taken by her. He's like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And he doesn't know whether he should even talk to her or anything like that. He's just like so taken by her. But she, in her own way, is taken by him as well. And they start to become friends. And then they start to become not boyfriend and girlfriend, I don't know what you would say in the animal world, um, mouse friend and guinea pig friend. And it's, it's wonderful. They go on walks together, they look at the stars together, they're deeply in love. But this poor little field mouse is insecure. And he can never get out of his head the question of whether she really does love him. Now, she always asks, he always says, do you love me? And she always says the same thing. Of course I love you. I loved you the day I met you. I love you this very day, and I shall love you till the day that I die. But it never quite satisfies him. In fact, one day he gets so depressed, he just can't work anymore. And his friends don't know what to do. But there's a slimy frog who's the floor manager. And during a smoke break, he goes like, come on out, let's have a chat about this. He says, what's going on? Right? You seem very upset. Your, your, your mind's not on the job. And the field mice says to him, listen, I've fallen in love with this guinea pig. Slimy frogs, I know. You always talk about her. Well, yeah, I love her. But I don't know if she loves me. And the slimy frog says, well, have you asked her? Yes, of course I've asked her. Well, what does she say? Well, she says she loves me. She said she loved me the day she met me. She loves me this very day, and she will love me till the day that I die. Well, there you go. But the mouse says, but does she really think that? And so the slimy frog says, listen, in the center of the lonely forest, there is a lake. And they call it the lake of truth. It's said that if you drink from the lake, you can hear the inner thoughts of the, the one you're with. Why don't you go for a walk, take her down by the lake of truth, Drink some of the water and then ask her the question, and then you'll know. Well, he thinks this is a great idea. So, yeah, on Saturday, he goes like, will we go out for a walk? Absolutely. They go for a walk right to the heart of the lonely forest, right to the lake of truth. And then he says, oh, I'm parched. I'm just going to have a little drink. He scurries down, drinks the water, then runs up to her and says, tell me one more time, do you love me? And she says, of course I love you. I loved you the day I met you. I love you this very day, and I shall love you till the day that I die. 
And then he waits. And sure enough, he hears her inner thoughts. Of course I love you. I love you this very day. I loved you the day I met you. I will love you till the day that I die. Oh my goodness, he is elated. He is so happy. Finally, he feels confident. And they have a wonderful day together. He tells a slimy frog and they celebrate. But then something strange happens. He doesn't turn up for work. Nobody knows where he is. Some people go to his house, nobody's there. Eventually, he comes back and he is so distraught. The slimy frog's like, what happened? Well, says the little field mouse, it turns out that the guinea pig was having an affair with another mouse, one with a shinier nose and nicer fur than mine. What, said his friends. One said, well, was the lake broken? No. Was it cursed? No. Was it a lying lake? No. She didn't love me. She only thought that she did. You see, we think that if we can get into the inner thoughts of the other, we will know what they know. We will know what they desire. But what if the other is not just a mystery to us? The other is a mystery to themselves. What if knowing the inner thoughts of the other person wouldn't give us any real insight into what the other desires? Because most of the time our desires are utterly foreign to us. We are enigmas to ourselves, not knowing why we're even here in this room tonight, not knowing what brings us into a space like this. That's the problem with the movie What Women Want. The question Freud was asking was not what's in the thoughts of the other person, but what's going on in their desire. So of course the question is, well, how do you come to know yourself? If it's not doxa, doxa meaning belief, then maybe it's praxis. We know what we believe through looking at what we do. But the problem with that is we can fool ourselves and our actions. So why then am I saying that there is a dimension of us that is other than our beliefs and our actions? What proof or evidence is there for that? Well, this brings us to the area called a parapraxis. Parapraxis is like paramilitary. So the military is kind of authorized by the state and a paramilitary organization is a military organization that is outside of, not authorized by, sometimes doing what the state wants, sometimes not, but it's outside of the authority of the, of the government. A parapraxis is a type of action that is outside the authority of your consciousness. It's a kind of action that happens behind your back without your permission, without you sometimes noticing. And what is that? Well, that's what a symptom is. A symptom is a parapraxis. It is the actions that you do when you don't mean to, when you burst into tears for no reason at some stupid advert, or when you have an outburst of anger at something incredibly tiny, when you argue about something that is like keeping the light on or not closing the fridge or something like that, and it becomes something huge. It's headaches or a bad back 
or not being able to open emails or driving cars or flying planes or a fear of closed spaces or open spaces or being alone or being with people. Your symptom is the thing that you think is not you. It's the moment you say, that's not me. That's just something weird. It's the, it's the, it's the action that you don't notice. But if you do notice, you simply dismiss or you try to dismiss. You try to get rid of because it's not you. It's not under the authority of your symbolic system. That's what a symptom is. Now, sometimes a headache is just a headache. Sometimes insomnia is just insomnia. Sometimes a bad back is just a bad back. Freud says sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. But sometimes it's a penis, right? And sometimes your symptom is telling you something that you cannot tell yourself. That's what the symptom is. It is the truth that speaks when you cannot speak your truth. It is the thing that reminds you that you're not your full identity. You're not what you think you are. There is something else going on. It's, this, is a, this is a way of understanding the holy. The holy means an utterly different dimension that tremors within the world, the mysterium tremendum. This is a wholly other dimension and think of it as W-H-O-L-E, this holy other, this, it's because it's like, you know, in, in um, uh, graveyards, it says gone but not forgotten on gravestones. This is the dimension of the forgotten but not gone. You push things down, you pretend it's not there, you pretend everything is fine. You're doing it right now, look at you, as you're all dressed up like you're normal, like you're here, like everything's fine and everything's great in your life and like you're a regular person. You're not a regular person, you're crazy. I've talked to your friends. <laughs> I've gone through your trash, honestly, right? You're, we're all pretending. This is kind of like the pretense. That's why often we have to wake ourselves up in our dreams because in our dreams we, we encounter the reality right? So you have to wake up in order to dream. You have to wake up in order to pretend that everything is great, everything is fantastic. Because in our dreams, sometimes that's where we hit our anxieties. That's where we hit the truth. That's why some of us find it so difficult to sleep, because you do want to encounter the truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. None of us believe that. We expel so much energy to avoid confronting the truth. This holy other dimension trembles within us. That's the symptom. And if we ever encounter parapraxis, we think we have to get rid of it. That's the problem. No, it's the solution to a problem, right? If you drink too much, you're an alcoholic, and you're able to stop drinking through sheer force of will, right? But you don't work out what that's saying. You go, I'm not an alcoholic, or, you know, that's just not me. And you know what? I'm just going to stop drinking, right? If you don't work out what is speaking, you'll do something even worse. I noticed this when I moved to LA. Have you heard of CrossFit? It's terrifying, right? One, one day you're drinking too much, the next day you're flipping tires. It's horrific. Drinking keel, it's horrible, right? Often, never happened to the Irish, right? So you'll just find a different symptom because this, this other dimension trembles within and has to speak.